Hello there, and welcome to episode 20 of the Biome Podcast. I'm Graham, and this is the podcast all about zoology and ecology. We would like to thank everyone who purchased merchandise recently. Over half of all the profits of the merchandise is going to save, uh, going to saving the survivors rhino rescue. If you haven't purchased your merchandise yet, be sure to check out our store at thebiopodcast.com. We have more collections dropping soon as well, so sign up for our newsletter and you won't miss a single thing. Now, let's look at the trivia question. In the last episode, I asked the trivia question, what is the color of an octopus's blood or an octopi's blood? The answer is actually blue. And it's blue because instead of having having hemoglobin in their blood to bind and carry the oxygen molecules from the lungs, much like we do, they have a compound called hemocyanin. It actually uses copper instead of iron in, uh, instead of the iron in our regular blood. The hemocyanin is actually blue and is found in most invertebrate species. Now, it's not as good at carrying oxygen as hemoglobin, but it's sufficient enough for the cold-blooded um, invertebrates to use, and so they do. Now, don't forget this week's trivia question. Let's see who can answer it. I'll give a shout out to the first three people who send me an email with the correct answer. Make sure you include your name in the email as well as your answer, obviously. You can also go to www.thebiomepodcast.com and use the contact form on the site to submit your answer. Now, for the question. Are there poisonous snakes? Be sure to send your answers to questions at thebiomepodcast.com. Again, you can go to www.thebiompodcast.com and use the contact form. Now, that question again is, are there any poisonous snakes? I did just want to remind you that you can visit the site and sign up for our newsletter so you don't miss a single episode. Or you can read a field notes while you're there. So, with that all said, let's jump straight into today's show. Welcome to the Animal Spotlight, the section where we explore what we know about the lives of some of the world's most fascinating creatures. I want to take a peek into the life of one of the world's masters of stealth. Now, I grew up in South Africa. We had family friends that had a private game reserve. Growing up, I also spent a lot of time in the various national parks, from Kruger National Park to Addo Elephant Park to even Tsitsikama. So I get very excited when I get to talk about African animals. They have a very special place in my heart. However, even though this animal is found in Africa and I still get very excited talking about it, it's not strictly an African animal. Today we will look into the lives of leopards, an animal so stealthy it has been known to sneak up to within a meter or three feet of its prey without the prey realizing it. 
The leopard is the smallest of the big cats, but it's also the most widely distributed. It shares parts of its vast territory with five separate larger predators, including lions, tigers, and even different species of bears. So, first things first, let's look into the characteristics of a leopard. How would you distinguish them from other big cats or even cheetahs? Well, let's start with the basics. A male leopard will stand about 60 to 70 centimeters tall at the shoulders. This is about 23 to 28 inches. The females are slightly smaller, standing about 57 to 64 centimeters, or about 22 to 25 and a half inches. Their spots make specific circular patterns called rosettes. These are different to the other African wildcats, like the serval or the cheetah, since those spots generally don't form a pattern, unlike the leopards. The record for the heaviest leopard found in Africa was about 96 kilograms, or about 212 pounds. Including the tail, this creature was about 8.5 feet long. The tail itself would have accounted for about 2 feet of that length, though, um, relatively speaking, the leopard has shorter legs proportionally to the other big cats. This is because it helps them climb trees better. It does this by increasing the strength of the bones and muscles, similar to how having a lower center of gravity will make you more stable. Leopards are famous for carrying their prey up a tree to keep it away from other scavengers or keep it away from scavengers like hyenas or even other large predators that might be tempted by a free meal. But how much can a leopard actually carry? Well, due to the incredibly powerful and stocky legs, a leopard can carry almost as much as three times their body weight. To give you an idea, this means that the record 96 kilogram or 212 pound leopard from Africa could carry almost 300 kilograms. If we even say that it topped out at 250 kilograms, that's still 551 pounds that it could carry up a tree. That's mind-blowing. Another really cool thing about leopards is they come in various colors. There are the common tawny-colored individuals with black rosette that everyone knows and loves. But there's also the stunning black panther. Black panthers are strictly speaking melanistic versions of either the leopard or the jaguar. Now, melanistic versions mean that it has an abundance of the pigment melanin in it. Surprisingly, they are all black or close to all black, much like the name suggests. There is another color variant though, and these have only been documented in one game reserve in South Africa and only since about 1990, so the last 30 years or so. These are leopards that exhibit erythroism, which means that instead of black, which is shown in individuals suffering from high levels of melanin, they show reddish colorizations. The rosettes of an individual with erythroism are redder than normal and usually lighter than the distinct black marks which is why they are colloquially known as strawberry leopards or pink panthers. Basically, they are the ginger version. Now, let's talk a bit more about black panthers. 
The black panther gene is a recessive gene. However, most commonly imagined animals, just to give you an idea, most commonly imagined animals have two sets of the same gene, one from the mother and one from the father. This is a very basic and simple explanation of how genes work, but it gives you the concept, or it explains the concept. Now, if one parent provides the gene for the black panther, but the other parent provides the normal gene, the baby will be a normal tawny leopard. If both parents provide the black panther gene, then the baby will be a black panther. Therefore, the black panther gene is recessive to the normal gene. This means that some leopards may be carriers without scientists knowing. Now, the fact that black panther individuals show up quite rarely could mean one of two things. One, that the gene is quite rare in the population, um, or two, that there are pressures put on the black panthers and they generally don't survive that long. What scientists have realized is that there are places where black panthers are more common and these areas seem to be highly, dense for, highly densely forested. This makes sense because of the dark shadows in the densely forested areas, they would provide cover. In savanna environments, the black panther would be seen immediately as you have this dark shadow walking through brightly lit grasslands. The black panther would have difficulty hunting then and likely not be as successful and wouldn't procreate or pass on their genes as often. However, in the dark shadows of the forest, being a black panther or being black rather than tawny might even be an advantage. It would allow the black panther to be more successful and more likely to pass on their genes as they hide in shadows to hunt their prey. Now, earlier we mentioned that the leopard is the most widely distributed big cat. It is found in the majority of sub-Saharan Africa, the Arabian Peninsula, and even Iran. It extends to the east to the Indian subcontinent, further east into Thailand, Laos, and even China. The leopard's home range will even extend north into, the, into southern Russia. And it was at one point found on the island of Japan, or Hong Kong as well, but they have since gone extinct there. Now, apart from southern Russia, extending north into southern Russia, it is also found on the islands of Sri Lanka and even the Indonesian island of Java. Now, using mitochondrial analysis, and just to give you a reminder, if you remember from high school, mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. The interesting thing is that they have their own DNA, separate from the cell itself. So while the cell gets its DNA from the organism's mother and father, the mitochondria gets its DNA only from the mother. Using mitochondria DNA to look for differences, um, it has been found that the leopard population can be split into eight different subspecies. You have the African subspecies, which is the most widespread of the different subspecies, and is found in most of sub-Saharan Africa. The Indian leopard, or the Indian subspecies, which is obviously native to the Indian subcontinent, Myanmar, and even Tibet. The Javan subspecies, which is, yep, you guessed it, found on the island of Java. The Arabian leopard, which is found on the Arabian Peninsula, 
and the Balakistan leopard, which is found in Turkey and the Caucasus Mountains, as well as the Iranian Plateau. The Amur leopard is found in the Russian Far East and Northern China. The Indo-Chinese subspecies is native to Southern China, while the last subspecies, the Sri Lankan subspecies, is found on the island of Sri Lanka. With such a massive range, there can be no doubt that leopards are arguably the most adaptable species of big cat and definitely deserve our respect. In some parts of India, leopards have started to become urban wildlife. But because they are such phenomenal stalkers and they are so elusive, they're rarely seen and therefore not a lot of people know that they're around. Such fascinating creatures. Okay, I think we're going to end our discussion of the leopard there, but let's see what's in store in the technical section. It is now time to highlight the technical section. The idea behind this section is to highlight some of the some sort of concept, theory, idea, process or pathway in the world of zoology and ecology. Usually, I like to tie this technical section in with the species we spoke about in the animal spotlight section. But since this is the 20th episode and because I feel like doing something different, we won't. Instead, if you want to if you want there to be a relationship uh, between the two sections, let's go with this episode's theme to be my home country of South Africa. Also, today we won't be talking much about a concept, a theory, idea or process. Instead, we will be talking about an event, a massive event. In fact, a migration. Now, migrations are common throughout the animal kingdom. Arctic terns will migrate from the North Pole to the South Pole and back every year. The grey whales of the Northern Hemisphere have one of the longest migrations of any mammal, travelling a round trip of 22,000 kilometres, or about 13,000 miles. In terms of sheer biomass though, one of the largest and most famous migrations is the wildebeest migration in South Africa. Now, biomass is the concept of the total mass of biological matter. In the wilde wildebeest migration, the biomass would be the total mass of all the wildebeest that are in the migration. So if you think about it, that is a large amount of biomass. Well, there is actually another migration that is estimated to rival the great wildebeest migration in terms of biomass. And it is known as the sardine run. Most people know sardines as little fish that you buy in tins from the grocery store, but know very little about their lives. Um, so one particular species is the... South African pilchard, or it's actually a subspecies of the um, of the sardine, but the South African pilchard, known as Sardinops sagax, that's the species name. The subspecies name is Oxentalus, I believe. Anyway, 
Something you need to know about the South African waters is that there are two ocean currents that meet at the southern portion of Africa. One current is called the Agulhas Current and the other is called the Benguela Current. The Agulhas Current is the basically the western border of the Indian Ocean. It flows south from Madagascar down the coast of Africa and a little further south before turning east and returning back to the Indian Ocean. At the southern end of South Africa is where the sardines spawn. And like a lot of fish, they lay countless eggs. In the right conditions, like plenty of food and appropriate temperatures, these little fish grow quickly. This is the start of the sardine run. Millions upon millions upon millions of these little fish begin to migrate north along the east coast of southern Africa. If you think how small these fish are, they grow to about 20 centimeters or about 8 inches in length. Just try to fathom how many individual specimens are needed to create shoals of fish 7 kilometers long about four and a half miles long and about one and a half kilometers or just under a mile wide and then about 30 meters or about 100 feet deep these massive schools of fish make their way north up the eastern coast of africa they eat incredible amounts of plankton as they go now plankton are free-floating microscopic organisms they are split into two categories. Phytoplankton are the plants that photosynthesize, and since they're found in all the world's oceans, they make up at least half of all the oxygen produced on Earth. Which is incredible if you think that they make that the phytoplankton make up about 1% of plant biomass. Phytoplankton can be Anything from types of bacteria to types of algae to specific armored organisms. The one thing all phytoplankton have in common is that all make their own food and light, uh, sorry, with light from the sun. The other type of plankton is called zooplankton and they are microscopic animals as well. They are known to, as heterotrophic meaning they feed on other types of plankton as they are unable to make their own food. They are larger than phytoplankton, but still generally remain microscopic. They can be crustaceans like the krill, um, which is an amazing food source of baleen whales, mollusks, jellyfish, and even baby or juvenile fish. An interesting fact about zooplankton is that even though there are no physical boundaries in the ocean, zooplankton are still found in patches of higher concentrations. These patches, or um, yeah, these patches are due to other factors like water temperature, uh, salinity, and even currents. Since these zooplankton drift in the water. They are not strong enough swimmers to escape the currents of the ocean and can therefore be affected by upwellings and tides. Because zooplankton feed mainly on phytoplankton, the amount of phytoplankton influences the amount of zooplankton. And zooplankton have such short lifespans and reproduce so quickly 
that popula uh, populations can rebound or deplete within a number of days. These plankton are the main food sources of the sardines, and they, the sardines at least, travel up the Agulhas current in schools of seven, several kilometers long, eating massive amounts of these microscopic organisms. However, the food chain does not end with these great little creatures. The reason the sardine run is so popular um, and only gaining in popularity is because of the number of predators that appear when these shoals are spotted. Common dolphins will round up the ball, making it a tight mass, as gannets will dive bomb the school from the air. Sharks, dolphins, killer whales, and even some tuna will then slowly annihilate the ball of tight-knit fish. For some unknown reason though, even though they don't feed on the fish, these um, these bait balls or the amount of activity that they draw in the large uh, or the amount of activity draw in the large baleen whales. Even if they don't feed on the fish, they're still often spotted around the mass of activity and frenzy that other animals are showing. There is a massive amount of activity at the as the bait ball of fish slowly dis, uh, dwindles and disappears. Sardines are found in the mid-level of the food chain. They eat the plankton, both zooplankton and phytoplankton. And the sardines are then eaten by other predators, and the sardine run provides these predators with significant food um, for a portion of the year. Usually around this time, actually. Now, if you ever get the chance to go see the sardine run in person, I highly recommend it. I think that's it for this episode's technical section, though. Let me know uh, what topics you would like to cover, and we can take it from there. You can use the contact form at thebiomepodcast.com. If you are looking for some merch while helping an incredible cause, go and have a look at the site at the www.thebiompodcast.com. They're all minimalist and unobtrusive. Every product is also eco-friendly, with the majority of it being 100% cotton and the rest of it being recycled materials. And when I say the hoodie is the softest hoodie I've ever owned, trust me. It is so incredibly soft. I love it. Now, that is the end of the show today. But before we head off, I just want to remind you of the trivia question for today's episode. Are there poisonous snakes? So be sure to send your answers to questions at thebiomepodcast.com or you can go to www.thebiompodcast.com and use the contact form to get a shout out and show all your friends just how knowledgeable you are. Another point is please make sure to visit the site and sign up for our newsletter so you don't miss a single episode. And feel free to read our field notes while you're there. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. They are always greatly appreciated. I hope you have a great two weeks ahead of you and I will see you in the next episode. For now though, 
don't forget to ask questions. It's the foundation of science, after all.